Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. You know, Jeff Bezos has his rocket, but we have... We time! Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with ProPublica's Dara Lind, Vox.com's Li Zhao. And uh, we are going back into The Weeds' time machine. We are going to talk about the Hart-Seller Immigration Act of 1965. This is very important. There have been important immigration bills since then, and there were important ones before them. But this is really the legislation that created the conceptual framework that we've been living with for over 50 years. And set the stage for a lot of today's immigration debates in some interesting ways. As we go further back in time, I think we need more and more context as to what the situation even was. It's the way the Weeds time machine works. It's like it requires very detailed context coordinates in order to get us to where we're going to go. It's advanced. It's actually, it's more advanced technology than these billionaires, low Earth orbit rocket ships. Um, So, all right, let's join me. Uh, We're going to enter the Weeds time machine, go to the mid 19th 1960s and the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965. Okay, so Lee, you know, help us understand the big deal, right? The sort of one sentence summary of this is that it repealed the national origin quota system. But like, what the hell is that? Like, what was the pre hard seller immigration system that was being reformed here? To your point, I think to properly time machine to 1965, we actually have to go all the way back to the 1920s, which is when the national origins policy is put into place. And the real TLDR for that law is that it was designed to keep specific groups out. And the way that Congress did that was to set up a quota system that was pegged to the 1890 census. And the reason they chose that year is because there were more Western and Northern European immigrants that had come to the U.S. earlier versus Southern and Eastern European immigrants, who were the groups that at the time Congress members wanted to limit. So the quotas they set were 2% of the people of a nationality that were present in 1890. And that dispropor- 
disproportionately favored countries like England, Ireland, and Germany versus countries like Italy. In the same time, that policy also completely barred immigrants from Asia by saying that anyone who couldn't become naturalized was unable to enter the country. And that de facto meant that anyone from Asia wouldn't be allowed inside. And so that's the policy that kind of was established before 1965 that we're working with. And there are various measures that um, establish carve-outs that change it until we get to the 1960s. But that's the foundational law before 1965. A huge resource on this subject is the book One Mighty and Irresistible Tide by Jia Lin Yang, which goes into the struggles and the political dynamics that take place between the 1920s and 1965 that lead to the passage of this immigration law. I want to kind of like look backwards from our like now secondary vantage point in the late 19-teens, early 1920s when the national origin system is established, because I think it's actually really important for what has changed post-65 and one of the kind of big picture changes to 65, just because a lot of the story that we're telling here is a story of America is obviously one place on the globe. There are many other places from which people can come. Not all people have come in equal numbers to the U.S., like from all regions of the globe. And so much of the story of immigration policy has been people coming from the wrong parts of the world. And so in the pre-national origins era, there were the Asian exclusions, Lee, that you mentioned were, you know, kind of baked in from the end of the 19th century when early immigration panics caused there to be this kind of country by country, region by region, oh, we don't want any people from there coming that was focused on Asia. And the reason that the national origins quotas, you know, are seen as a way to put anti-Southern and Eastern European racism into American law is because that was the kind of difference between the 1890 and 1900 censuses that were kind of the two on offer at the time that the law was being introduced. But it comes from this kind of assumed background of anti-Asian racism, where the prior Asian exclusions were just already baked into the law because the conceptual framework was that you could assimilate even Southern and Eastern European immigrants. You just had to be very, very careful about that kind of thing. Whereas Asians were the kind of unassimilable other. And that's going to become really relevant when we talk about the kind of post-1965 world. Who were talking about here, you know, I was looking up on Ancestry.com, my family tree, you know, and I have all these great grandparents, Solomon Bestine, Kate Goldstein, Abraham Joskow, Molly Newberg, Sarah Epstein, you know, and they all come to the United States from what at the time was the Russian Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, today Poland, roughly, Eastern European Jews, they all come to the United States in the early 1900s or late 1890s. And that's typical, right? Like, it's not a coincidence that I have six Eastern European Jewish great-grandparents, and they all arrived rapidly after 1890. And like, that's why it's pegged to 1890. There was this huge outflow of people from Italy, Austria, Hungary, and Russia, many of them Catholic, most of the rest Jewish, and a lot of disgruntlement about that. And as Darius says, I mean, this is kind of a halfway house between the like, no, Chinese people can't come here. And like, yeah, we'd love more Norwegians that Donald Trump has carried forward was to say, we're going to throttle the number of people from this part of the world who can come without categorically excluding them. 
And a big part of the story of reform is that the children and grandchildren of those 1890s, 1900s immigrants are much more assimilated, right? I mean, by the time we're in the 1950s, there are lots of Jewish and Catholic voters in the United States. They have elected representatives in Congress. They have a meaningful amount of political clout. And especially after the Holocaust, are very agitated about these restrictive immigration policies in the United States and are a meaningful lobby for reform because the immigration wasn't reversed, essentially, by this policy. It was essentially too late, right, to stop Italian and Polish and Jewish immigrants from becoming an important political constituency in the United States. I would actually put it a slightly different way. So much anti-immigrant anxiety throughout American history has been the question of assimilability, right? Like, there is a shared baseline understanding among, like, most immigration hawks and moderates. You don't want to bring people here to do exactly the same thing they did in the old country, to be the same people they were in the old country, that there has to be a way in which living here and settling here makes them American. This is why it's, of course, always tied in with racial politics, is which people are conceptually able to do that? What are the skills and traits that allow people to become American? And so if the logic of the national origin system was, we can't disrupt this careful, delicate balance of assimilation that we developed in the like golden years years of the 1870s, then that succeeded, right? Like you successfully had upward intergenerational mobility of these Southern and Eastern European immigrants and what they failed to anticipate. And of course, the Holocaust like looms very large here was that the political identity of those second and third generation folks would be tied into this idea that they were American, but also had an ethnic heritage that was important. And that limiting the immigration of people who weren't necessarily related to them from their own countries of origin was a slap in the face to their own ability to claim themselves as fully American. And to give you a sense to a little more of the context of the 1920s, it's also at the time when the eugenics movement is really picking up in the U.S. So this 1920s law is inextricably linked with the rise of those discriminatory beliefs and policies. And you actually had the chair of the House Immigration Committee leading a major national eugenics organization at the same time. So there is just this huge baked in racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism anti-Catholic sentiment all bound up into this law um, and to what we were talking about in terms of it actually doing what it meant to do in terms of keeping people out that were designated by Congress at the time. Um, I think you saw Italian-American immigration go from 200,000 people per year to 4,000 people per year. So this is a really stark kind of stemming the flow of people from these various countries that the law tries to target. And so one thing that I learned sort of researching for the time machine because I the kind of potted history of this I'd gotten was that, well, we had the national quotas and then policy was kind of frozen for 40 years. And then we had this reform. But there was actually like quite a lot of immigration bills start passing in the 40s and 50s of various kinds, right? Starting with like as a World War II measure, they repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act because China is an ally of the United States. But then the national quotas are in effect. So you can't actually 
actually immigrate. Well, and then they also have to like cludge this like explicitly racial triangle where it's like we're going to repeal the national origins quotas because China's an ally, but we're also going to have this global cap on persons of Asiatic descent. I would love to know how the diplomacy with China worked after that. It doesn't seem like it's a super effective solution to the ally problem. Well, and it seems like there's a lot of ping-ponging, right? So they do this um, this War Brides Act in 1949. Senator McCarran from Nevada makes immigration stricter again in 1952. Yes, McCarran-Walter, you know, for super nerds, if you find yourself looking through the U.S. code dealing with immigration, not that any of us have spent probably months of our lives doing that, the baseline text of the Immigration and Nationality Act that we have today is actually based on the McCarran-Walter 1952 Act which is funny because Truman vetoed it and said it was racist, and then they passed it over his veto. And those are the bones of the system we have today. But then in the very next year, after the McCarran-Walter Act, they pass a Refugee Relief Act to let in 60,000 Italians, 17,000 Greeks, like outside the context of the quotas. I mean, which is just to say, like, politics wasn't highly partisan at this point in time. So it's not like the kind of policy seesaws that we have today. But there's this like an active contestation going on, right, where there's a mix of Cold War concerns that like it's bad to be um, excluding refugees from various communist states. There's World War II alliance politics, there's ethnic politics in the United States. And then there's this continuing pushback uh, from people like McCarran, who say that immigration from Eastern Europe is going to be a source of communist infiltration and like all these other kind of bad things. And then we have Hart and Seller in the 50s trying early versions of this reform that eventually comes together in the 60s. I was struck, you know, reviewing some stuff. And by reviewing some stuff, I mean rereading the last chapter of Impossible Subjects by Amin Yai, which is like the critical text on the immigration policy of the, you know, first half of the 20th century leading into 65. And I had forgotten how long it took to build the policy consensus for the 1965 bill, because I am used to 21st century Congress, where if it doesn't happen in two years, it's dead. And if you really want it to work, you negotiate it secretly and then pass it in a week. But at the same time, the fact that it took Sellers leading hearings in the early and mid 1950s to kind of lay the groundwork for what's ultimately going to be a bill that gets passed a decade later doesn't seem like that long when you consider that there were these other kind of bills dealing with discrete parts of the problem. What you see in the like lead up to Hart Seller is people dealing with kind of discrete parts of this issue as they come up, right? Like the refugee situation in Eastern Europe is terrible after World War II. It's seen as a really urgent problem from both a foreign policy and like Cold War politics perspective. And so they can deal with that as its own thing. You can deal with the particular ways to unwind the Asian exclusion as its own thing. You see this kind of groping towards a bigger conceptual framework where people are dealing with regional immigration issues and then only kind of in their spare time thinking about what is the overall system that we want, what are the kinds of people who we want to have, rather than the latter considerations leading the former, which is what you had in the institution of the National Origins Act, and what you kind of then get when Hart Seller says we're going to create a system that tackles this whole thing at once. So should we take a break and then talk about what is in this law? Sounds good. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, so Lee, I mean, obviously these are big laws, <laughs> but what do we have instead of national origins quotas? Yeah. What's the new deal? <laughs> it gets rid of the national origins quotas completely, and it replaces it with caps for the Eastern and Western Hemisphere. So in the Eastern Hemisphere, the cap is 170,000 people per year, 20,000 cap per country. And in the Western Hemisphere, it's 120,000 um, people per year. And that's the first time you actually have a cap on the Western Hemisphere, which is important to remember in terms of how we got to the immigration system that we have today and some of the challenges that we face. And then additionally, what this law lays out is it prioritizes family-based immigration as kind of the main way that people are coming to the U.S. in addition to high-skilled immigration and people who might have refugee status. And that's really what we've stuck with until now. So a lot of the measures that you see in 1965 have fueled the kinds of policies that we've seen grow out since then. And so what does this sort of mean in a practical sense in terms of the short-term change in immigration policy, right? The idea is that now, instead of people's ability to come being sort of throttled by this old 1890 census, it's if you are living abroad and you have relatives who are living in the United States, you can come, which had you done that in the 30s, clearly would have opened the doors to a lot of people from Southern and Eastern 
Europe. And I mean, I guess that was the intention here was to try to do that primarily. That's exactly why they went with the family-based approach, because the idea was, you know, if you're bringing in family, that's people who are already in the U.S. bringing in relatives of theirs. So that's mostly white people from Western and Northern Europe bringing in other Western and Northern Europeans. I think what they didn't expect is that immigrants coming in through some of these other categories that are created, such as the employment categories, would also want to bring in their families, as would be a natural inclination for, I think, anyone going to a new country. But that's something that Congress did not predict. And so you see actually an influx of immigration from Asia, which is not something that I think Congress, even the advocates of the law, thought was going to happen at the time. This is something that I knew. And as Lee can tell you, I had forgotten so deeply that I had to ask her on two separate occasions. No, really, really, someone had to have thought about this, right? Because it seems like such a basic conceptual error. But what's happening here is that this idea of category-based immigration is novel. And so because they're imposing this superstructure on the national origin stuff and saying, we're not in now a kind of like origins blind framework that's governed by these country caps instead of these like country specific origin quotas, we're still selecting for the kind of immigrants we want, but we're selecting along two tracks. We're selecting people who we think can assimilate because they're educated and have skills and therefore can like upward mobility themselves. And we'll select people who already have relatives in the United States so that their relatives can be responsible for them, responsible culturally for integrating them, that like it won't kind of tip the balance too much. And the failure to think about the intersection of those makes a lot more sense when you realize how novel it was, right? It wasn't just that like, we'd had 40 years before the last period of mass immigration, it was that they weren't actually looking at what would happen when you had both of these systems operating in tandem. But it does mean that this is like one of the great unintended consequences in American legislative history, because you end up with a law that is being passed on the impetus of Southern and European American ethnic groups that ends up primarily creating an Asian America that didn't exist prior to 1965. And it seems like this was sort of unintended on two different levels, right? One is that 1965 is so long after 1924 that the pool of like close relatives of immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe has like gotten small. Right. And like also World War One curtailed immigration before the 1924 law. Right. So a bill that had it been enacted 25 years earlier would have opened the doors to like lots of brothers and stuff like that. You're now like you're looking at cousins, you know, or things like that. Like it's much more attenuated. Also, Eastern Europe has been taken over by communists. And it is now very challenging to emigrate from Hungary and Poland and places like that, right? Like Stalin was not letting people come and take advantage of this kind of thing. Also, to the extent that a lot of them were Jews, they didn't exist anymore. Right. They're dead or are in Israel already at this point. And then the economy is growing really rapidly in Italy. I can't say it. They have this phrase for the 30 miraculous years of post-World War II Italian economic growth. So the incentive to depart Italy for the Western Hemisphere has actually really collapsed relative to, I think, like the headspace of people who are like mad about racists from the mid-20s. And then they're not thinking through, I guess, what we now call chain migration, 
right? There's some examples of people specifically saying, well, look, we should prioritize family unification because that's going to maintain the ethnic balance in the United States. If we do it as all work visas, then like who knows who's going to come in. But it's not zero work visas. And the family unification provision means that once any sort of founding population of people come in, that creates new opportunities for immigration. So we start seeing this, um, I don't know exactly how you want to put it, but it's like the flows from different countries ever since then have a kind of weird pattern where they will start really, really small because there's very little family migration, but people come through some other category, but then it gets bigger. And then the more people who are there, the more relatives they have. And it gets bigger again. And then you eventually hit some country-specific limits and it stops growing. I mean, as far as any of us know, right, like this is genuinely not what they were trying to do. Like there's um, Hiram Fong is like says like Asians will never be more than 1% of the population. And it's just it's weird. The impact was really not what the advocates had intended. And one of the reasons is also that they were operating off of faulty information. So prior to 1965, the quotas for Asian countries that were set were between 100 to 200 people. And so like you did not have a ton of applications because most people were like, I probably won't get it. It's not worth it. And it's such a narrow quota. So like they were looking at, you know, demand from a lot of these countries, but demand was very low. And that was because of the way that the U.S. immigration system was set up. And so operating off of that, they're like, oh, if we continue with this level, we're going to continue to see people under 100 when that was absolutely not the case when it was opened up. I mean, I think it's also true that the relative positions of Western and Asian countries in 1965 were fundamentally different, right? Because like World War II and the Cold War had totally reshaped on kind of a conceptual level, you know, had had meant that there was like more affinity between the US and Japan, for example, and that it wouldn't seem as strange to migrate from one of those to the other. But like, that runs headfirst into the notion that we were talking about in the kind of Asian Exclusion Act of unassimilability, right? Like there isn't really a reckoning because of this like faulty information. The assumption is that never the twain shall meet rather than anyone actually really saying, no, you know, people of Asian descent can become American just as easily as everybody else can. Like, that there's never really a tackling of this kind of idea of unassimilability, which you kind of continue to see today, right? The particular way in which anti-Asian racism in the U.S. is tied to this idea of foreignness has persisted, even as a lot of people you know, or at this point as settled as anyone else. I think like I've been talking in broad generalizations and Lee, something that you kind of have pointed out that I am less sensitive to is the fact that this like doesn't work identically for everybody, right? That there are important differences in kind of the groups who come here and what their mobility is when they arrive. Can you talk through that a little bit? So when you have these categories of family-based employment and people who are displaced or refugees, I think what you've seen from Asia in the decades since this law has passed is you have groups of people who've come over to provide different skills of labor. And then you also have large pools of refugees who've come over after military conflicts in Asia that the U.S. has been involved in. And so with those two groups of immigration, you actually see massive economic disparities within this group that's categorized as Asian America. And that's created a problem because 
I think there's a perception of Asian Americans, you know, being very successful, doing well, having higher median incomes than the average median income in the U.S. broadly. But that overlooks a lot of people who've come over in these groups of refugees who actually aren't doing as well and who aren't getting the policy support that they need because of the generalizations we make about Asian Americans in policy and also more broadly in the way that we talk about people. I also wanted to just, you know, give people some sense of the sort of political context for this vote, right, which is obviously this is happening at around the same time as the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. The sort of main political impetus is coming from Catholic and Jewish voters and their representatives in Congress. But I mean, I think obviously one reason why you see a stepping away from the sort of hard exclusion of Asians is that overt racism is becoming stigmatized in the political system, right? It's a sense that you can't do this. And if you look at I was looking on on voteview.com at the the exact breakdown, right? And the no votes on this are it's overwhelmingly Southern Democrats who vote no. A handful of Southern Republicans who there were starting to be some of vote no, although most of the newly elected Southern Republicans vote yes. There's like one no vote from upstate New York, one no vote from Iowa, um, and also Apparently, Nevada was a hotbed of anti-immigrant politics at this time, and they vote no. But otherwise, like throughout the North and most of the Southern Republicans are are for it. So it seems like the opposition to this is coming from the same place as opposition to the civil rights movement, even though the issue at hand here is not literally related. Obviously, there is immigration from Africa now, but that doesn't really start coming as a as a short-term result of this kind of law. So, and on that level, the unintended consequences feel more intended than they really were, right? That like there in fact was a substantial racial diversification of the United States coming from this. It has the voting pattern that you sort of generally associate with civil rights measures of that time. And I think that's in in one reason how we sort of like misremember it exactly, but it's kind of like the things the opponents were saying kind of came true. We just wouldn't endorse the overall perspective that those people had on, on the United States. Right. I mean, this gets back to the Cold War politics of it all, right? Because the arguments being pushed by proponents of immigration liberalization are pretty explicitly taken directly from the foreign policy argument that civil rights advocates were making, which is that it's a very bad look for the U.S. to say, we are the defenders of freedom and self-determination in the global context, and we celebrate difference instead of stamping it out under the communist conformity, and then to have this like racial caste system or to have this extremely discriminatory immigration system. And like, there are obviously like real politic concerns of the same sorts that you saw that, you know, when we were talking about the World War II changes, but even more broadly, there's this conceptual argument of like, we can't be a credible superpower if we don't have these laws at home. And so it's not that like, opponents of immigration liberalization were like, we don't want a more diverse America. It was, we disagree that the way to fight communism is to become more liberal domestically. We think the way to fight communism is to smash up some commies. (laughs) You know, it's kind of worth tracing this through because this sort of rhetoric really 
I wouldn't say has its origins, but like comes to the fore so much because of the work of civil rights advocates around World War II and the double victory campaign and the idea that in exchange for demonstrating sufficient patriotism in defense of America in the military, that Black Americans would be proving to the world that America lived up to its promise and then proving to America the same thing. This is like a lot of the arguments are kind of just lifted wholesale from that. And what there isn't, and you would expect there to be kind of from the perspective of the present, is a development of solidarity among non-white Americans. This isn't an argument that we need to be better to Asian Americans, to Mexican Americans, et cetera, et cetera. You may have noticed there isn't a whole lot of talk of Mexico at all, which is kind of a thing in its own right. But it also means that the kind of politics we have now where immigration is seen as a progressive issue because it is a people of color issue is not at all the way it's seen when the 1965 law gets passed. It's much more a colorblind racial liberalism that has lifted its rhetoric from Black civil rights advocates, but is very much the provenance of New York white liberals. The other context, I think, of the time frame when it's passed is that this is following John F. Kennedy's assassination. This is also following just huge Democratic majorities getting elected in the House and the Senate. And so it's a time when Lyndon Johnson is trying to pass through sweeping legislation legislation that is more progressive, including a lot of civil rights bills. You have the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Immigration and Nationality Act. So these are all kind of part and parcel of a similar mindset as we've been talking about. Okay, let's take another break and then let's talk about some of the legacy issues here. So we've been talking primarily about the ways in which the 65 law liberalized immigration. Um, And I was talking about Southern Democrats as the sort of main locus of opposition. One exception to that is Henry Gonzalez, who is from the South and is a Democrat, but he's obviously a Mexican-American House member. He represents San Antonio. He votes for the Civil Rights Act. He votes for the Voting Rights Act. He votes for the Fair Housing Act. He votes against this bill because in his mind, this is not a liberalizing civil rights measure. This is closing the border between the United States and Mexico. And it sounds like fantastical to anyone who's paid attention to the immigration politics of the past 20 years. But during this allegedly restrictionist era of the mid 20th century, there's no limitation on migration from Latin America. And I I talked about my my Jewish great-grandparents and coming before the 24 law. Uh, My other great-grandparents came from Cuba, and they just got on a boat and came to Tampa. And then they lived there, and they went back, and then they came back to Tampa, and then they went back to Cuba, and then they went back to Tampa, and then they stayed there for forever. Other stuff happened. But like, it was a totally different situation on the southern border from how we understand it now. And the big issue was nationalization, which was relatively rare, as I understand it. Like, there wasn't a lot of people necessarily moving from Mexico into the United States, settling here permanently, applying for citizenship. But some people did. I mean, Henry Gonzalez was in the House of Representatives. And people would just kind of come and go until we created, you know, a much more restricted and regulated system with this hard seller law. 
Yeah, I feel like as we've talked about, there was kind of this inherent contradiction to the law where on the one hand, it opens up access in a huge way to Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe. And on the other hand, it sets these limits in place for one of the first times to Mexico and to other places on the Western Hemisphere. But that's like kind of the two sides of what the law has ended up doing. Right. And this is another problem where like what seems like a failure to think about easily predictable consequences is in fact, a legacy of just a lot of things happening at once and people not necessarily having good information to act on. Like right before the 1965 law is passed, the major program legalizing temporary labor from Mexico, the Bracero program, is ended. And so the politics of that were seen as totally different. They were very much tied in with labor politics and the question of what was best for American workers in the American economy. And at the time the 1965 law was passed, hadn't been a post-Bracero period. So there wasn't really a sense of what the continued desire for people to come from Mexico to the United States to work would look like when you didn't have a program in effect regularizing that. So it meant the end of the Bracero program and then the creation of these caps on immigration from Latin America meant that a few things happened. First of all, you know, there were no, like all the legal pathways had collapsed. Second of all, the ability to do this kind of circular work-based migration was somewhat restricted. It would get more restricted once border enforcement actually became a thing in the later decades of the 20th century. But there was already kind of built into part of the ways that, you know, work visas build this, you know, dual track thing into the law is that it's assumed that if you're here on a temporary work visa that you're not going to settle down here. But work visas require jumping through so many hoops to get and last for long enough that it's more likely that someone is going to decide they want to settle when they're on a work visa than when they're just kind of like coming up for six months and then going back. And of course, with the restrictions, there's a strong incentive to settle in the US and then, you know, get naturalized and bring your family over rather than continuing to remain as a temporary person who can only see your family some of the time. So there are just a lot of things that happen at once, the result of which is that while it's not like there was no such thing as unauthorized migration, it's not like there was no such thing as unauthorized Latin American migration, it happened in this very different framework where the policy solutions were different and much easier to kind of like quietly establish and where the politics of the issue were just very separate. Like there was unsurprisingly a whole lot of rhetoric by the proponents of the 1965 Act about like, well, it's super hard for a good European immigrant to come through the front door, but all of these criminals can come through the back door very easily. That was kind of the only context in which those two things were seen as two sides of the same coin, which makes a lot of sense, right? Like there's actually policy-wise no reason that you need to consider the question of who are we allowing to apply for legal status from the rest of the world as the same question is what do we do with the people who can get here, whether we have already asked them to or not? And the fact that those two get welded together is to a certain extent because the 1965 law says that they're now part of the same, you know, like hemispheric quota system. And that because we've capped the overall number of immigrants that we can have, there's going to have to be a trade-off between immigration from Mexico and immigration from Poland to a way that didn't exist before. One point that you mentioned in, in passing, Dara, that I want to highlight is the lack of um, meaningful 
border enforcement in this measure that, you know, we're talking about unintended consequences. And the bill both completely alters the like conceptual framework of immigration from Latin America, but it doesn't evince a like seriousness of purpose about it, right? Like there's no like, and here's our $5 billion that's going to stop people from crossing the US-Mexico border, which as we know is very long, right? And we're now 25 years into a period of sort of border militarization, but we're 25 years into that. We're not 55 years into it, right? Like they didn't at that time say like, no, we actually want to do things to forcefully prevent people from crossing the border, but they switched from this very casual treatment of it to one where like, no, it's like it's in fact illegal to come do this. You cannot work legally. And the thinking I mean, I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but obviously part of the thinking was that not that many people would want to do this, right? That absent the Bracero program, absent a kind of legal thumbs up, that there just was not – I mean, after all, there hadn't been restrictions for all this time. The Hispanic origin population in the United States was not particularly high. In this 40 prior years, there had been some immigration from Mexico, but like not that much. And so they thought they were going to reduce it. But obviously, in reality, immigration from Mexico to the United States went up quite dramatically in the period after this law, even though the legal framework became less favorable, you know, which I mean, it goes to show many things. But like one of them is that there's more to who moves where and when and why than what is and isn't legal. Uh, For the longest time, we had this open border. Some people moved to South Texas, but not that many and not to any place else, really. And then, like, the door was shut, but actually more people started coming. Yeah, I mean, it's also worth noting, and this is not something that this law touches on at all, but is then kind of tightened as border enforcement becomes more of a thing, is that legalization for people who were already settled in the United States was just much easier. So when you were thinking about the unauthorized population pre-1965, you were talking about transient workers, who weren't spending a ton of time in the U.S. And so the social problems that that created were like gold rush style social problems of like having a bunch of men without attachments to a place in a place at once. They weren't the things we see today of this extremely settled, unauthorized population because it was for, you know, various reasons that are like my personal hobby horse, a whole lot easier for somebody who had been living in the U.S. for several years, who had family here, who had roots here. There were mechanisms in place to say, okay, we're going to use the existing system to now say I'm legal. But also, at least as I understand it from talking to people in San Antonio about the situation back in the day, that part of what happens here is that like the racial context in the United States altered. Right. And that moving to the United would the two things, right? That one, the government of Texas and of the United States in general was extremely comfortable with the idea of leaving the South Texas Latino population in a state of like total chaos. People weren't like, ah, this is costing us so much in our school budget, so much as they just weren't providing schooling. But then also people, it was very alarming the prospect of outside of narrow geographic range to like just go move to St. Louis, right, as a non-white person during the the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And so there was a kind of informal social limit that starts relaxing as the United States becomes committed to civil rights and its legal dynamic, but also just 
socially like a more diverse kind of place. And, you know, it wasn't a like official immigration policy that like, well, if you go someplace, you're going to be treated like crap by people because they're super racist. But that was like a real fact about the United States that served as a kind of limitation on moving out of the San Antonio, Rio Grande Valley kind of area, which is what, you know, you really see now, right, which is uh, Latino immigration to like all kinds of places where it's often not that well received politically, but not the same as, you know, it would have been two generations ago. It does kind of feel like it goes back to what we were saying about like faulty information and data and just a lack of understanding of what was going to happen or any sense of trying to understand that. And then I think the second piece goes back to what Dara was saying about how a lot of these policies got tacked on together around the same time without what appears to be much thought about how they would interplay with one another. And the actual cap on the Western Hemisphere was a concession to Southern lawmakers who wanted to put something into the 1965 law that was actually restrictive. And so that was something that was actually added on, basically, and that they tried to get taken out before it ultimately went to the floor vote. So it's something that I think some lawmakers believe shouldn't have happened. And because I believe it was added on, you you then get this sense of like, okay, they did not really anticipate what would happen when they made this change. So, I mean, something that I kind of want to put out to both of y'all is like, we were talking in the first segment about how there were all these kind of like smaller bills, you know, in the time between in the, in the kind of end of the toward the end of the national origins period, like, at this point, the broader conceptual framework of immigration has really been in place since 1965. You know, there have been the kind of major immigration bills that have passed since then, 1986, 1996, have been focused on border enforcement and the kind of interior enforcement legalization. You know, what do we do with people who are here in the U.S. without papers question? What do you think has been the not just like the legacy of this particular bill, but having the same framework guiding immigration for the last 50 years, which is like longer than the national origin system was ever in place. And, you know, it like has been in place through a lot of changes to both kind of world systems and the ease of people to get from one place to another. I feel like one of the problems with U.S. immigration policy in all of the iterations we've talked about is that it doesn't actually feel responsive to a need. So like right now, what we see is huge backlogs in family and employment-based visas. And like that's because in 1965, when they put together this 20,000 cap per country, it was the same cap for every country. And like that doesn't really make sense when you think about different populations populations and when you look at demand and just interest in people. And there has not really been a significant change to that. Like they've changed the cap, but you're still looking at that same type of measure even since then, despite the trends that we've seen. And so it feels very much like we need to create an immigration policy that's responsive to actual people's needs. And I think that's the same as when we talk about immigration, you know, from Latin America and from Mexico and how it hasn't really responded to what people have needed. And, you know, the demand and people wanting to come to the U.S. from those places. Yeah. And what you just said, like, actually sparked a really interesting contrast for me, because like, you know, when we were talking about the people who were pushing for this bill, seeing people who had come from their home country who weren't 
close relatives as like still their fellow people and pushing for a broader liberalization because they understood that it would like that it would help their own status in American society. Thinking about the politics created by this visa backlog that you're talking about are that the countries that are most you know, the uh, China and India in particular, and like the politics of this are very, very strong in some segments of the Indian American community, where because they are seen as high skilled immigrants and yet are affected by this family based visa backlog, there's a lot of frustration and resentment toward the system. And a lot of idea that like the answer is going to be to get rid of the country caps to make it easier for that they have been uniquely oppressed by the existing system and that changing the country caps will make it, you know, easier for them. And then there's the opponents of that particular reform are often people who are generally also supportive of liberalized immigration saying, look, that seems like a facially neutral reform, but in fact is going to benefit people who are already being benefited by other parts of this system, such as the relative ease of immigrating as a high-skilled immigrant versus low-skilled immigrant, etc. And it creates a sort of very different from the politics of solidarity, of white liberal solidarity that created 1965 and means that within this framework of like, well, you know, we know that there's going to be a global cap on immigration. It all has to be a zero sum game. And it's a lot of very specific politicking about what do we do with nurses from the Northern Mariana Islands and which visas do we take away if we're going to give more visas for people in other categories, rather than this broader, de-regionalized framework that we get in 1965 means that all politics have to be very, very small bore in order to change the allocation from one category to another. So to explain the, the math on this a little bit, right? The way it works is that, as Lee was saying, there's a cap per country, which is not responsive to either that country's sort of prevalence in the U.S. ethnic mix or just the fact that, like, India has a lot more people in it than Jamaica. But then on the other side, right, when they're doing skilled visas, it's just like, look, like, you need to have the skills and, you know, go through the process and blah, 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 blah. Because so many people are Indian, a very large proportion of the people getting skilled visas are Indian because it's a, it's a large proportion of the global population. But then when Indian Americans try to get visas for relatives, the country cap really, really squeezes you tight because it's the same cap as a much, much smaller country would have. So the waiting list goes on forever. Um, you know, second degree relatives have basically no chance of coming in. And this is, again, it's the intersection between how the different moving pieces of this law work it doesn't follow any logic. And, you know, I mean, one thing that strikes me is having not changed this for so anything that sticks around for a long time just kind of develops a constituency and it becomes like sanctified in aspects of rhetoric. So it's like now like the family-based immigration system is like a thing, right? And like people will talk about it and they have feelings and there's advocacy around it. And it's completely detached from like what the creators of this system like said they were doing or why they said they were doing it, right? That like the theory that we need family-based immigration to keep the ethnic mix of the mid-60s United States stable is like, A, not what anybody thinks now. B, it's like not factually true, but it's hard to just sort of like 
whiteboard the immigration system from scratch. But we're now actually so distant from when this was created that like nobody participating in the debate necessarily like knows or cares where these provisions came from or or why. And it's so accidental. There's no like like cellarists like <laughs> um, standing up for like the pure vision of this program. And so much of our dialogue now is about unauthorized migration from Latin America, which was just like not an issue. Like it's a policy problem that we've like backed into stepwise over a series of years, mostly by doing things that were counterproductive to the sort of intentions of the people who wanted to restrict migration. Like the main reason it's hard to fix immigration is it's just hard to pass laws in general. But I think it's created a very difficult conceptual situation, right? Like if a law had been passed that was like what we are trying to do here is increase immigration from Asia, legal immigration, and also make it easier for people to settle unauthorized from Latin America, then we could like look back and be like, well, did we achieve our goals? Have we changed our goals? But like neither of those things were the desired outcome of the law. And it's very, I sort of, I feel like I understand better why there's so much like distrust around various aspects of this. It it definitely makes it seem like Congress is like not great at like figuring out the billiards of the immigration system. This episode has definitely persuaded me that I am not wrong in thinking that the story of immigration policy in the US is a story of unintended consequences. Uh, and it has opened my eyes to the fact that I guess that's not true of all policy. Like, I had always been generalizing out from this particular, like, you can understand that if this is the history that you have to know in order to understand incremental changes in immigration policy in 2021, that, like, you assume everything is going to ricochet. <laughs> I mean, we skipped past, you know, the time machine skipped past the 86 and 96 immigration laws, which were also significant, but which... I mean, again, as you were saying, they, they really continue this pattern of like not doing what they were at least advertised to do. Although at least in those cases, it seems at least like a little bit more of a connection between the policy changes that were made and the topic that was at hand, which was really like unauthorized labor migration from Mexico. Whereas just like the hugest irony of this is that like there is no huge surge in Eastern European immigration following this law, which that was its whole purpose. It is just fascinating that I think that that's one of the outcomes. And also, you know, when it comes to unauthorized immigration, it just is interesting to me that like talking about all this has made me just reframe how we think about it. Because now in the rhetoric and in the policies that are pushed forward predominantly by Republicans, it's this idea of demonizing people for coming to the U.S., illegally, you know, like that is the framework that a lot of this conversation happens in. And when you think about it, it's like, this is a problem that Congress created. Like this is an issue that lawmakers actually established because they didn't think about the effect of the policy and because of the unintended consequences. And they've never really truly developed a system that helps reckon with it and helps people. And so I think just that fundamental reframing of the conversation is something that this context helps with that I hadn't thought about as much before. Great. We've all like developed takeaways from the time machine that we can carry with us when we go back into 2021. This has been this has been edifying for the three people on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Lee. Thanks, of course, to the uh, designers of our uh, Weeds Time Machine. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis. And the Weeds will be back on Friday.